Welcome to the One Signal Podcast, where we aim to educate ourselves on product industry and best practices as it relates to building and growing a customer messaging practice. This is your host, Josh Wetzel. Today, we've got the One Signal CEO and co-founder, George Deglin, to discuss web push changes. And then we'll have a customer success manager, Karima Wagner, on to discuss best implementation for web push. And um, I'll cover some of the value props. So, welcome, George. Thanks, Josh. Glad to be here. So we've got some big changes coming next week with the, the new Chrome release, Chrome 80. I'd love for you to kind of illuminate some of the things that are happening there and how we've kind of led in the discussions and, and things OneSignal is doing about that. Yeah, a lot of uh, changes coming up to how browsers are helping content creators get permission from users to send those users notifications. So as many people who are listening uh, may know or, or perhaps uh, are new to WebPush, it was first introduced in 2015 in most browsers. Actually, there was an earlier implementation that Safari had available in the desktop browser for macOS, but it wasn't very widely used because it was just limited to the Safari browser. Then in 2015, a new protocol emerged and it was implemented by Chrome, and then later Firefox, Microsoft Edge, Samsung browser, uh, and also uh, other browsers like Opera. It very quickly rose to popularity. You know, in the past, when websites wanted to engage with users, it would have to be by asking that user to provide their email address um, or some other way to contact that person. And that's a pretty big ask uh, and requires a multi-step process for users to then connect with that website. It's also not an immediate channel. So if a website has breaking news or other time-sensitive content, email is a pretty limited channel to deliver those kinds of updates. So WebPush solves all of that. It has a very low barrier to opt-in. It also is a great real-time channel, so whether it's breaking news, e-commerce-related messages, such as an item coming back in stock or being discounted, or getting messages from friends or colleagues, it's a perfect channel for that. Now, of course, with any new technology, it gets adopted in various ways that browsers may or may not expect. And I think one thing that people observed with WebPush is that it was adopted extremely quickly but also not always adopted in the best way. And specifically, a lot of websites ended up asking users to grant web push permission by showing them the native browser permission prompt as soon as the user visited the website. Of course, that worked reasonably well initially. A lot of users hadn't seen this before and clicked allow just to see what would happen. But over time, I think a lot of users became sort of fatigued with that process, realized that it wasn't a great user experience uh, to have every website asking for permission in this way. And what browser vendors saw and what users have uh, sort of reported in their feedback is that they're tired of seeing these prompts over and over without context. And the rate at which users click allow versus deny on the browser native permission prompt started to rapidly and dramatically shift towards deny. So more and more often when users are presented that prompt without context, they're clicking deny. So. With these observations that browser vendors have made, there's been a lot of discussion, some of which we were fortunate to participate in when uh, talking to the developer relations folks at Google, working on the Chrome browser, as well as some of the other browsers. And their observation was that they would like to create a way that websites could still ask users for permission, but were encouraged to do so in a way that increased the likelihood that people that were prompted would click allow and also were encouraged to make sure that they provided context on the permission prompt. And so different browsers have chosen different implementations to this. The first browser to implement a change to improve the experience was Safari. And they decided that before the native permission prompt could be shown, the website needed to have some amount of user interaction. So the user had to click somewhere on the page. 
Their hope is that the user would click on some button on the page that clearly indicated the button would show the native permission prompt, and users could click allow. Firefox took a similar approach, but probably the most impactful approach is the approach that the Chrome browser is taking, both because Chrome is very widely used across Mac OS, Windows, and Android devices, as well as the nuances of the approach, which are a little bit more sophisticated than what Safari and Firefox have done. In Chrome, users who frequently deny permission across many websites will no longer be able to see the native browser permission prompt. Instead, Chrome has created a new type of prompt which shows up in the address bar and is less interruptive to the user experience. Their mindset for this is that if a user is clicking no over and over and over, they're not likely to want to see future prompts on other websites, and therefore they probably shouldn't be shown the native prompt. The other change that's happening is that websites that ask for permission from many users and have a very high rate of users clicking deny, similarly for users visiting those websites, they will no longer see the standard native prompt. Instead, they'll see a prompt in the address bar that's less interruptive to their user experience. As you can imagine, there's actually an interesting intersection between these two changes. And that is that users are actually overall less likely to see the native prompt and less likely to see have an opportunity to deny because the address bar one they'll probably just ignore and take no action at all in many cases. As a result, we think the most frequent experience that will happen is that websites that don't provide a good experience and show the native prompt without context, either trying to trick a user into clicking allow or just trying to provide it without as much context as they should, in those cases, the deny rate will be very high. And for people that visit that website, they probably will see the quiet prompt instead of the regular native permission prompt. Well, that's a great summary. I appreciate that. And how do you think this will impact? Or actually, let me start first off. What is OneSignal doing about this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've looked at this very carefully. Um, and in fact, we knew from very early on that it was important to provide our customers a way to easily provide context to users, an easy way for users to grant permission as well as to revoke permission from a website. So in our setup flow, we've pre-built a few widgets that our customers can put on their website. So for example, one of them is a little icon that appears in the corner of the website, and their visitors can click on the icon to allow notifications. Uh, Basically, clicking the icon will tell the browser to show the native prompt. We also introduced a button that our customers can place anywhere they'd like on their page. And then when their users click the button, then the native prompt will show. And finally, we have a slide down, which when a user visits a website or takes certain actions on a website, a little window slides down that's part of the website with a button on it. And then when users click yes on that button, then the native prompt is shown. All this is in the interest of helping our customers provide more context to users about why they may want to allow notification permission It's also in the interest of reducing the frequency that browsers are showing the native prompt to users that actually won't grant permission to the website. And as a result, this actually also resolves some of the concerns and and changes that are coming in Chrome. Because if users never see the native prompt unless they want to, they also won't be clicking deny in the native prompt. And our customers will ensure that the opt-in rate will remain high for them and that their website will continue working as it always has. And then lastly, what are the kind of impact you think? Like on the one side, those can be people impacted positively. And in theory, there's going to be some negative impact. Yeah. You know, when you look at the different websites that have implemented WebPush, 
there are some that have, are a little bit more unsavory that may be trying to trick users into clicking allow on the native permission prompt without like, you know, just by sort of deceiving the user uh, in the experience. And I think early on, that strategy, unfortunately, was effective for some spammy websites. Users were sort of trained to subconsciously click allow without sort of realizing maybe what permission they were granting and then getting notifications that they didn't want to receive. Already that has not become very effective. Users are more savvy. They're clicking no more often. So what's going to happen really is that these more unsavory websites that may have been trying to deceive users already weren't working very well, but they were still a pretty annoying user experience for people that came across them. And these changes will resolve some of those user experience problems that have been occurring. On the flip side of things, websites that implement web push in a user-friendly way that are sending notifications that users want to receive and are providing necessary context to users when they are prompted to grant permission, those websites are going to benefit a lot. I think what's happened is, in some cases, web push has kind of earned a bad reputation from some of the earlier misuse by uh, less desirable websites. And that's been an impediment to further adoption and the success of web push by good actors. With these changes, good actors will benefit. I think we'll see more and more websites implementing web push that may have previously hesitated to do it. And also, I think the overall user experience will improve as websites are encouraged to make sure they're providing the necessary context around permissions and being thoughtful about their whole user experience across their website. Cool. Well, George, thank you very much. I appreciate the update and I'm looking forward to the changes that are coming out next week. Thank you, Josh. So the value of web push is straightforward. We talk a lot about how do you acquire new users, how do I gain more traffic. We don't talk enough about it. How do I build engaged relationships with the users who are most enjoying my site or my product? Increasing repeat visitation of your existing users is far more cost-effective and easier than acquiring new ones. There's many economic models that prove this out. Many say it's roughly 5x, 6x more, easier and cheaper to retain those users. And WebPush does that. The people that are going to opt in from WebPush are your most valuable consumers. It's the three, four, five, six, seven percent of those users who most appreciate your product and want to return and want to engage with the product, whether it's news alerts, product purchases, content engagement, whatever it may be. And there's a bunch of models out there that show kind of repeat visitation, the value of those users, engaging those most loyal users again. We have a bunch of examples that you can see on the site of media companies or web push implementations from Clutch Points, which is a trusted source for news on sports, Product Hunt, which is a product discovery, product launch platform, you now, a live streaming service used by, by 15,000 broadcasters. All of these are examples of people who have implemented web push successfully to drive increased engagement with their users and specifically drive repeat engagement and greater loyalty with those, the most important users. So. Now I'm going to turn it over and talk about best implementation um, with a customer success manager, Karima. Uh, Karima, it's great having you on the podcast. Excited to have you here and uh, talk about best practices. Yeah, I'm very excited to be on the podcast too. Okay, why don't you take it away? Uh, where do you want to start? Yeah, so I was thinking usually when we're talking about web push, you want to know what is the best practice for setup and also eventually for messaging your customers. So I would start with setup. I have a few best practices, but I would divide them by uh, your type of setup. So if you're going with typical setup or you have a WordPress site, you do definitely want to avoid the native prompt. 
due to all the browser changes that are happening. So for typical on WordPress, you want to leverage our out-of-the-box prompts that we have. You could use slide prompt, subscription bell, or custom link. You could also combine some of them if you want. If you are going with custom setup, then you definitely want to make your prompts in a way where it gives your users the option to choose either topics or the frequency at which they want to receive your messages. That's very important because if you give them that power, they trust you more, especially if you stick to what they choose. And in general, make your prompts relevant in time. So don't prompt someone right the first second they visit your site. Try to delay it a little bit or maybe prompt them on specific pages if they're interested in a specific topic, then maybe that's the right time to, uh, to prompt. And in general, if you can give them the value of why they would benefit from subscribing, that's the best way to increase your opt-in rate. Okay, that's great. So those are great recommendations on getting subscribers. Uh, once you have subscribers, what are best practices? Yeah. So the first thing would be content. Um, I think that's very important more than anything else. Always send relevant content. Think of it as if you were optimizing for search engine optimization. You want to use the right keywords. You want to keep it short. So you're taking also in consideration different types of screens and screen sizes. That's very important. If you have a long message, they won't see all of it. So what's the point? So I would say that's the first thing. The second is personalization. Everyone wants something that's tailored to them. It's really important that you take that into consideration. OneSignal already allows you to um, segment, so you can use segments for that. You can segment by location, you could segment by interest, and that actually brings us to tags. Some platforms call them universal events. So based on your user behaviors, most likely you are tracking these events. So you do want to actually message them based on these behaviors. It's, I would say, the same way that you use for maybe your email marketing if you're doing that as well. So personalizing is very important. The other thing is people in general are interested in anything that's colorful. So using emojis is very good. Don't use too many emojis. They have to be relevant. They have to be very clear in the meaning. So anything that could be a little confusing or has double meaning, probably avoid it. That's one of the funny things I've seen in the data since being here is that emojis do have a, a really positive impact on, on engagement. So it's a, it's a funny thing in our world, the visualization. So, okay, keep going. Yeah. Um, media is the other thing. With web, it's a little limited to just images, but do take advantage of them. So if you could probably add an image that is related to the product or maybe the topic or anything that you're messaging them about, it always gets the user's attention and they would be more curious to click and learn more. The other thing that's also very helpful is consideration of time. Time zone, if you have users on different time zones, is very helpful. The other thing would be considering when your user is actually active on your site. That's the best time to send them the message because it's very timely, and then they will be most likely, they would have the availability to actually go into the site and see what, whatever message you, you prompt them to do. The other thing that I can think of is language. So depending on the device language, that's something that's very important. If maybe I my devices are in French, most likely I do speak French, I would be more likely to engage with the message if it's in my language. Um, these are the main best practices that I can think of. But 
beyond that, I really think it's very important for you to test and see what's working and what's not. So for that, I have two additional things. We do offer A-B testing for your messages. So you could test things like different content or maybe one with media, one without, one with emojis, one without, and then see what's working. That's a great way of really maximizing your strategy. And in general, I think it's very important to analyze all your efforts. So you could do that by integrating with your analytics tool. OneSignal allows you to do that very easily. Or if you do not have the ability to do that, you can also leverage outcomes, which is also a, a feature in OneSignal that allows you to actually track specific things and see if the users actually convert to certain things with your notification. Cool. Well, Karima, I really appreciate you joining us and walking us through that. This is very important to get your messaging strategy right, to be doing things the right way. And 100% agree, personalization, relevance, which is a combination of, of language and whatnot. So thank you for joining today. Thanks for having me. Uh, and if you enjoyed listening to this, uh, please subscribe at your favorite podcast directory. You can find the One Signal podcast at, at all of them, Spotify, iTunes, TuneIn, Google Podcasts, and so on. So thank you very much. Have a good day.